Hello and welcome to Haunted Hometowns, your weekly true crime paranormal podcast with me, Blake Lambert Hack. This season I'm covering cases from the illustrious New York City and tonight was a whirlwind of a case to research to be honest. It stems from a building in Greenwich Village, no surprise there, and it is supposedly one of the most haunted buildings in New York City, and it goes by the address 12 Gay Street. Super haunted, and I will get into that later, of course, but it was also once a speakeasy during Prohibition called the Pirate's Den owned and operated by the infamously corrupt New York City Mayor James John Walker, a.k.a. Jimmy Walker, a.k.a. Bo James, a.k.a. The Night Mayor. I kind of like that because it sounds like the night, the nightmare, but the night mayor. There's a nice je ne sais quoi. Je ne sais quoi. The nightmare. I will also get into his life in a bit, but I do want to start with the woman who would eventually be Jimmy Walker's downfall. The one and only Vivian Gordon. Really quickly, before I jump into this case, I do want to say I saw Oliver, the musical, in New York City this last weekend. And Oliver is one of my favorite shows of all time. Though sitting and watching it, I did realize I did some introspective work and I realized that I really love a good orphan movie or musical or whatever this case. I love Oliver, orphan of course. Another famous orphan, Annie, great musical. Uh, Sweeney Todd has one of my favorite orphans. I don't remember his name, but he's that little kid that follows Miss Lovett around and says he'll protect her. Love that kid. Newsies, the musical, a bunch of orphans. Love all of them. Love Newsies, one of my favorite movies of all time. So you know what? I just love a good plot point that involves orphans. Harry Potter. Not that I love Harry Potter himself, but the movies are great. The books are great. I love an orphan. I don't know what to say. But I would say go see Oliver the Musical in New York City, but it has already closed. I did see the last day. It was great. I hope they do revive it again on Broadway because I do. God, I'm obsessed with that show. It's not my favorite, but it's definitely in the top five. And Nancy may very well be my favorite fictional character of all time. I cry every time at the end of that show because of Nancy. I just love her so dearly. Oh, I love her. Okay, now back to the episode at hand. It's around 11 p.m. on February 25th, 1931. A 40-year-old Vivian Gordon left her spacious apartment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. She was in a velvet black dress with lace, white gloves, suede heels, a mink fur coat, platinum watch, and two carat diamond ring 
and got into a Cadillac. Now, I can't pass up this iconic outfit. A velvet black dress with lace. I'm already in. I love a black ensemble, if you will, especially if it's velvet. I have a velvet black shirt I wear only on special occasions like New Year's Eve. White gloves. It's the 20s, or I guess it is, you know, early 30s, but still that time period of gloves. And I'm okay with gloves. I'm indifferent. But these suede heels, oof, oof, bitch, I'm into a suede heel. I have two pairs of suede boots. I have, I had three, but I gave one to my brother's. I love suede. I love velvet. A mink fur coat. Obviously, we all feel a type of way about fur. Mink doesn't do anything for me, but I do have a faux fur white coat that, again, I wear on special occasions. Love it, love it, love it. Platinum watch, meh. Watches aren't really my thing. I have one watch that's really cool. I wear it all the time. I don't need more than one. It doesn't need to be platinum. Two-carat diamond ring. Sure, I get it. It's the early 1900s. Really popular. One day when I get married, I don't want diamonds necessarily. I just want a fun, cool-looking, interesting, iconic ring. Not, you know, your typical white diamond. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I just... It's not for me. But the point of this is, she's decked out. She looks hot and she's going out about the town at 11 p.m love it and she's getting into a cadillac which back then was the car if you had money you bought a cadillac my grandma hack which is my great-grandmother apparently would not go on dates unless they picked her up in a cadillac and that's hot girl shit i don't know what to tell you find your man who can afford a cadillac Anyway, the following morning, 1931, so this is February 26th at this point, at 8.20 a.m., an oil worker on his way to work discovered Vivian's body in Van Cortland Park in the Bronx near the golf course and cemetery. When she was found, she was coatless. One glove was laying nearby. One of her black pumps was tossed to the side and her ring and pocketbook were missing. The police had zero leads, and for weeks, the public became obsessed with Vivian's case. Normally, you would ask yourself, why is the entirety of New York City so focused on one murder? Well, before Vivian was found dead, she had testified in court and accused the New York Police Department of corruption, which had led to an investigation into police practices, which also led an investigation into the mayor, Jimmy Walker. So a little bit about Vivian Gordon. She was born in Joliet, Illinois. Shout out to Illinois, where I'm from, a town not very far from where I was born. So... Not that I love Joliet, but, you know, shout out to Illinois. Some of Illinois. In 1891, 
She was born as Benita Franklin. Her father was a prison warden. Don't love that. And I'm not sure what happened to her mother. She's not really talked about in any of the articles. But Vivian's father sent her, sent Vivian to the Ladies of Loretta Convent. The only thing I could find as to why he would have sent her there is that he couldn't afford to take care of her any longer and that she was rebellious. Not that that's a good reason to send your child away, but I think it was semi-common for parents to send their kids to convents at that time, you know, late 1800s, if they were acting up or were pregnant out of wedlock, etc., or mental illness, or whatever the case may be. But at the convent, Vivian was described as insubordinate after trying to kill herself. And honestly, I would probably feel the same way if I was in her shoes. The last place I want to go is a religious prison. Honestly, I don't know if I could think of a worse place. Especially in the early 1900s. But instead, Vivian ran away from the convent and became a chorus girl. So with the popularity of chorus lines increasing in vaudeville and shows, women of a certain waist and height were hired to sing and dance. Working very long and hard hours, they would travel performing until they found a social light husband allowing them to retire and live a luxe life. And I kind of like that idea of performing for a living and like killing it and working hard and doing it. And then you find a rich husband and then you retire. I kind of love that. That sounds hot. But at least that's like how many chorus girls lived. Obviously not everybody did that or could do that, but a lot of them did. Vivian was performing in Charleston in 1912, where she met such a man named John Biscoff. These are really fun names, I do have to say. Vivian Gordon, even though that is her stage name, is a great stage name. Benita Franklin, another great name as her maiden name or her birth name. John Biscoff, Jimmy Walker. These are such good names. And usually I complain about names in my stories because a lot of, you know, historical names are a little boring, a little repetitive, but these, I fuck with these. Okay. She met John Biscoff and they became common law married. No one knows for sure why Vivian changed her name from Benita Franklin to Vivian Gordon, but it could be a mix of, again, finding a stage name to be a chorus girl and or wanting to put her past behind her and start new. Anyhow, Vivian and John Biscoff had a daughter three years later, and Vivian named her Benita after her birth name. In 1920, Vivian moved to New York City and lived a normal, chill life. And I say that because there isn't really anything written about her life for three years, until she was arrested in 1923. At this point, 
John was filing for divorce while Vivian was seeing a new man named Al Marks, a patrolman named Andrew McLaughlin caught Vivian and Al sleeping together at the Langwell Hotel and arrested her for prostitution where she was convicted and sentenced to two years. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are thinking, A, how did he know they were there? B, is that legal? But the more we talk about it, the more it might make a little more sense. I think at the time, because she was still married, she wasn't allowed to sleep with another man, maybe. I'm not quite sure, but we'll get into it a little bit. But also, going to jail for two years for just having sex? Criminal. That's criminal. And because of this, John was given custody of Benita, even though Vivian, of course, desperately fought for her daughter. But after being arrested and going to prison, she obviously didn't win. When she got out two years later, she became a scam artist and made her money in the blackmail business. She made a decent amount of money doing this and never got caught. So she's a pro. She's great. And she made so much money that she would regularly lend money to gangs in New York. So she's kind of killing it in the underworld game, I guess. And I don't really fault her. Honestly, I'm sure going to prison really put a mark on her head for finding a job or finding a man. And at that time, women were expected to do one or the other, usually find a man. And she couldn't for many reasons or didn't want to for many reasons. So you know what? Do you do you girl. You found what makes you a lot of money. You found what you're good at. Stick to it. Kill it. Be the best. By 1930, Governor Franklin Delano Roosevelt was aware of possible police corruption, though I feel like there's always police corruption, but maybe this is a little more than normal police corruption. So he basically empowered a former judge, Samuel Seabury, to investigate the police and courts. Again, more great names. Obviously, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, great. Samuel Seabury, great. Al Marks, love it. So Samuel Seabury is investigating the police and the courts. Because of this, Vivian felt as if she was arrested for prostitution because her ex, John, hired patrolman Andrew McLaughlin to have Vivian arrested so that John would get custody of their daughter. So kind of, you know, a light bulb went off for her. She read these investigations in the paper and we're like, oh my God, maybe this patrolman is corrupt and was bought by my ex to take away my daughter, which... She's probably right. Never trust a man or the police. And if they're a policeman, 
forget it. Vivian sent letters to John and Andrew saying she was going to tell her daughter everything, but they didn't budge. They wouldn't come clean. So Vivian wrote to Samuel Seabury explaining her situation and that she was wrongfully convicted. Samuel met with Vivian and she promised she would find corroborating evidence to back her story. However, Four days later, she testified to police corruption. And a day after that, Vivian was found strangled to death in the Bronx. Now, during the investigation of her death, police found diaries in her apartment mentioning over 300 names of prominent businessmen and gang members throughout New York City. So in the movies, when they're like, oh my god, these call girls, I'm not calling Vivian a call girl, but you know what I mean. These call girls have, you know, their little black books, and they're listed all these major men who've like done shady business deals or done shady shit. It's real. It's fucking real. Vivian had 300 names of prominent businessmen and gang members throughout New York City. The police discovered that she owned buildings in Queens that would hold gambling dens. So basically all these men in like all these 300 men in her books either owed her money or she would blackmail for money. So she was rolling in the dough. Again, remember what she was wearing. The police had a huge suspect list, but in the diaries, Vivian named her ex-boyfriend, John Rattleoff, as the, quote, only man I fear, unquote. So that's a great place to start. John Rattleoff was interrogated, and eventually he was held on a $100,000 bail, which is crazy for 1931 in my eyes like that's crazy for today but 1931 a hundred thousand dollars and then while he was while they're dealing with john rattleoff fun name to say another suspect showed up who was a different ex of vivian's being joseph rattelo now <laughs> rattelo rattelo and rattleoff were cousins it's so stupid. It's like Bert and Ernie, but like rattle Rattle-Off. They're cousins, but they've, I don't know. <laughs> it's cousins, cousins. There has never been a better. Anyway, Harry Stein is another suspect on the list at this point. We have John Rattle-Off, Joseph rattle and now Harry Stein. Get your... Uh, big boards out with your pins and your yarn. Vivian gave Harry an advance to commit bank fraud and bootlegging. And I don't even, like, bootlegging is so whatever at this time. Obviously, it's prohibition, so people bootlegged all the time. Great. Get your booze. Have fun. Bank fraud, though. Come on, girl. She was financially involved with, again, a lot of people, 
but specifically Legs Diamond, Arnold Rothstein, and the Long Beach Liquor Mob. And again, so many more, but those are three big names at the time. The longer Vivian's murder went unsolved, the more people spoke out against the corruption in city government. On March 1st, so we're a couple weeks in, Samuel Seabury began receiving death threats from someone named Dr. X. They were never discovered, but they said Vivian died for squealing, basically. There were three separate investigations involving Vivian at this time. There's obviously her murder, her false arrest in 1923 was under investigation, and the overall corruption in city government, the police, the mayor, the courts, etc., that Vivian testified against. Eventually, police discovered that patrolman Andrew McClellan, who only made $3,000 a year, had deposited $35,800 into his bank account over a course of two years. They questioned him on how he received so much money in two years. And he basically lied, made up an excuse, as they all do. But he was also found to have made 1,200 arrests in 10 years, where he would roam up and down Broadway in Manhattan, arresting women. And during the interrogations after he would arrest him, he would abuse the women until they confessed to imaginary crimes. There's no... You can't frame that any other way. That's police corruption. It's black and white here. Police corruption. You can't abuse, whether it be verbal, emotional, physical abuse. Can't abuse people to get confessions out of them. Because nine times out of ten, they're false confessions. We see that time and time again, especially on this podcast, especially when we're talking about witches. So even though Andrew was discovered with a shit ton of money and a ton of arrests that shouldn't have happened, he was never convicted, he was never charged for Vivian's murder, and he was released and was allowed to live his life because corruption. Name of the episode, Corruption. It's not really going to be the name of the episode, but, you know, if I was naming them not based on characters, it'd be Corruption. So on March 18th, the City Affairs Committee demanded the removal of New York City's Mayor Jimmy Walker. However, Jimmy denied any corruption in his police department or in the courts, which... At this point, Jimmy, I would say if I was there with you, don't double down. Don't double down on your men not being corrupt. There's already a lot of circumstantial evidence. You just got to be like, shit, I didn't know all this was happening behind my back. Let me fix it. Let me be a great mayor, get to the bottom of it, and fix it for my people. And then you come out the hero. You can't double down. You just can't. 
Three weeks later, Harry Stein was arrested for disposing of Vivian's belongings. The police discovered Harry Schlitten drove the murder car. During the trial for Harry and Harry. Oh, these duplicate names again. But they are fun. Harry Stein and Harry Schlitten. During the trial in June, it was uncovered that Rattleoff had hired Stein to murder Vivian. There were testimonies, however, that the men had alibis during the murder and they couldn't have possibly done it. So the men were acquitted. The Bronx District Attorney called it, quote, a gross miscarriage of justice, unquote. Vivian Gordon's murder was never officially solved. However, she did bring down one of the most corrupt mayors in New York City's history, or most corrupt mayors in all of the United States, Jimmy Walker. Now, before I get into Jimmy Walker's life, I think from reading these articles, historians believe and the courts believe that, yes, Radiloff hired Harry Stein to murder Vivian Gordon and Harry Schlitten just drove the car to do so. I'm assuming drove the Cadillac. But none of them were arrested for that. I don't know if any of them were re- uh, arrested later on in life. The very high chance that they were since, you know, they were in that kind of profession. But it's unfortunate that Vivian Gordon never got justice for her murder. Now, Jimmy Walker was born in 1881 in New York City. His father, William H. Walker, wanted Jimmy to be a lawyer and politician and wanted him to do what he wanted to do with his life instead of letting him be himself. So I kind of blame the father here, honestly. Because Jimmy just wanted to write music and be part of the music industry. However, his dad is like, no. Jimmy even wrote the lyrics to the 1906 hit, Will You Love Me in December as you do in May. And I do have to say, I hate long song titles. They're not for me. I much rather use a one-word song, a one-word song title, or even just like a short, you know, "Will You Love Me?" Great song title. Why does it have to be "Will You Love Me" in December as you do in May? It's too much. Or just call it December. Or call it "Love Me." I don't know. There's a lot of other titles in there that I like better than Will You Love Me in December as you do in May. Doesn't roll off your tongue. However, he it was a hit, so good for him. 1906, got a hit. However, his one hit wasn't financially sustain, sustaining him because at that time, you couldn't be a one-hit wonder. You had to continue to make songs and kill it over and over and over again. Not like today, where someone can pop up with one song, make millions and millions of dollars, and then disappear for the rest of their life. And honestly, I would love to do that. That sounds great. Someone produce a song for me. We'll go number one, I promise. 
So because he only had one hit, he entered politics like his dad asked him to in 1909 and passed the bar exam in 1912. Jimmy moved from the New York State Assembly to the New York Senate, where he strongly opposed prohibition, so good for him. He decided to focus on the mayoral election of 1925, basically the man for the working class. He would frequent speakeasies and theaters. He dressed extremely well. And one time he packed 43 suits for his trip to Europe. Now I have four suits and a tux. And I think that's enough for right now. 43 suits. And I know, remember, everyone is wearing suits back then. You wear a suit every day. It's different. But 43 for a trip to Europe? There must have been duplicate colors. Or maybe different patterns or fabrics or something like that. I don't know. It seems like there aren't a lot of iterations of suits, especially at that time. So... I don't know. I guess if you don't want to be seen wearing the same outfit twice, you got to bring that many for a month's trip. Maybe I'm just jealous. <laughs> 43 suits. That sounds great, actually. So even though Jimmy had a reputation for tolerating corruption, people loved him because he backed important issues like social welfare, legalizing boxing, repealing blue laws, uh, blue laws were uh, laws that prohibited certain activities on Sundays. And he was like, no, I want to watch baseball on Sunday. Uh, he was against prohibition and he condemned the KKK amongst other issues. So people were, people loved him. People fucked with him. And even though he never stopped drinking or sleeping around, He did stop doing those things in public as often. So, yes, he drank all the time. Yes, he slept with chorus girls all the time. But he tried to, you know, keep it private. Until he was elected as the mayor of New York City, of course. So in his first year of being mayor in New York City, so 1926... He helped create the Department of Sanitation. Extremely important. Thank you, Jimmy. He unified New York public hospitals. Thank you, Jimmy. He improved parks and playgrounds across New York City. Love that. Prospect Park is fantastic. I have no idea if he was involved with that, but I love Prospect Park. And he helped with the expansion of the subway system. Thank you, Jimmy. We love the subway system in New York City. He also kept subway fare at five cents. So the public was in love with him. He did a lot of good in the first year. A man of the people, I like to say. Especially because he did oppose prohibition. Like he was firmly against prohibition and let everybody know it. He liked to drink. I feel like he's probably a whiskey guy. I'm kind of getting that vibe from Jimmy, as am I. 
I don't know, something about him. Whiskey. I tried Angel's Envy, like really tried it for the first time. Like I've had it in the past, but I really tried Angel's Envy recently and I am not a fan. It is not for me. It tastes like peanut butter to me. I don't get it. Like I, friends I had were like, yeah, it's fine. I like it. It's whatever. I'm like, no, absolutely not. Sorry. Woodford though. Thank you, Woodford. Great. Great, great, great. Also, Johnny Walker Blue can't, or Black or Blue. No, thank you. Don't like it. No. Jefferson, great. Jack, sure. Makers, sure. Mitgers, sure. Anyway, I'm just curious what he was drinking back then. Jimmy not only, like, opposed it publicly, but he publicly opposed it in the Senate, on the Senate floor, and then told police officers not to arrest people for drinking unless it was a newsworthy case, meaning he could get in trouble for not taking action, or if someone was blatantly drinking on the sidewalk, like on the curb, which makes sense. It's like, if you're going to drink, hide it, and then no one's going to bother you, which, great, we love that. He was also infamous for sleeping with chorus girls, like I mentioned, but so much so he divorced his wife for showgirl Betty Compton. Betty was known for performing with the Ziegfeld Follies and was in the original production of Funny Face with Fred Astaire and Adele Astaire. Jimmy was Betty's third husband. They adopted two children, James J. Walker II, horrible name, sorry kid, and Mary Ann Walker. Mary Ann. Marianne. Jimmy was reelected in 1929 by a huge margin. I mean, as much as he wasn't the best person, he was a fantastic politician and got shit done. So I get it. However, Jimmy started losing support when the Cardinal Archbishop of New York denounced him for sleeping around betting at casinos, tolerating girly magazines, which is, I don't know, the 20s version of porn, uh, and drinking, of course. But basically, the church was mad because he was having fun and the archbishop couldn't. That's where I'm at with that. I do wonder what his support would be like today. Like, obviously, he would be socially hanged for backing cop corruption, or at least being complicit in it. But maybe if no one bothered him about the other bullshit, he would be harder on the cops. Does that make sense? Like today, nobody would give him shit about drinking. No one would really give him shit about sleeping around, especially if he's not married. Like you don't need to be married to be a politician. I know that doesn't seem correct, but you don't. You don't. Have your fun. So if no one's bothering him about those things, Maybe he would be more free to fight cop corruption. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just curious what people would think of him if he was mayor today. Anyway, Judge Samuel Seabury began investigating Jimmy because of the social unrest 
and found that he was accepting large amounts of money in exchange for municipal contracts. And I would bet Jimmy was only doing that because of the stock market crash of 1929, where he lost a chunk of money. And by chunk, I mean a good amount of money, you know, because of the Great Depression, the Great Crash, Black Tuesday, the crash that led to the Great Depression. Part of that, everyone's losing money, right? He's the mayor, so I'm sure he's a lot more than a lot of other people during the Great Depression, but I don't know if he would turn to accepting large amounts of money for exchange for you know, promises if it wasn't during the Great Depression. We'll never know. But part of that investigation into Jimmy was an investigation into the police department, since they answered to the mayor, of course. In walks none other than Vivian Gordon. She informed the committee that women were being falsely arrested and accused for prostitution by the NYCPD. And by doing so, the cops were receiving more money on their paychecks for the arrests. Even though, there was, even though the arrests were bullshit. So again, Vivian came. She told the committee. She testified. She did all that. And then a day later, she was strangled to death and left in a Bronx park. Many saying that her death was on Jimmy for allowing the corruption. This is when Governor Franklin D. Roosevelt steps in. Even though he's torn on what he should do, he's gearing up to run for president of the United States, so he doesn't want to lose any support, of course. However, he doesn't want to appear weak by doing nothing and letting Jimmy do whatever he wants. So for a while, Jimmy denied everything and had an excuse for everything, but when Roosevelt was nominated as the official Democratic nomination for the presidency, Jimmy knew he couldn't fight it any longer. Roosevelt called for Jimmy's removal, and Jimmy agreed and resigned in 1932. He went to Europe for a while to escape the press, and when he returned, he vowed to never hold public office again. Instead, he acted as head of Majestic Records, a record company who signed famous jazz musicians. They had other musicians as well, but like some of the more famous musicians they signed happened to be jazz performers. He also had his own radio series called Jimmy Walker's Opportunity Hour. And honestly, I'm glad that he eventually got to do what he always dreamed of doing working in the music business. Betty and Jimmy divorced in 1941, a surprise to no one, since this was Betty's third marriage, and she got married one more time after that. And Jimmy died of a brain hemorrhage at the age of 65 in 1946. Yeah, he again, he's known as being one of the worst mayors of the United States, uh specifically mayor for a large city, but I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I don't know much about him or his political life, but the little I do know about him, 
and his actions don't make me view him as bad. Sure, he should have done some stuff differently. Of course, I don't agree with police corruption. But overall, he achieved a lot and made a lot of people happy. So I do kind of think part of it was he was being used to be set up as an example by Roosevelt and other higher-ups in the political chain. And again, I'm not saying what he did wasn't wrong. He absolutely shouldn't have taken bribe money. He absolutely shouldn't have turned a blind eye to police corruption, but also did a lot of good. So I don't know. People are complicated. He need to resign at that point, yes, but I feel like if he didn't double down, you know, earlier he would have been fine but let's take a break here i will be right back with some hauntings If you're interested in learning more about Jimmy Walker, there's a play called Tammany Hall, a novel called Blood Money, a film called Zelig, a film called Bo James starring Bob Hope, which I guess is probably the most accurate depiction of Jimmy Walker. There's a biography that the film was based off of also called Bo James. There's a song by Dean Martin called Bo James. There's a musical titled Jimmy. And many, many more. And again, he's infamous. Especially in New York City. That play called Tammany Hall is because Tammany Hall, the political people, backed Jimmy Walker for a lot of his career. The same political group that back to Boss Tweed in a previous episode of mine. So it just sounds like Tammany Hall is backing corruption. I should also mention that during Jimmy Walker's time as mayor, he purchased a building in Greenwich Village where he opened his own speakeasy known as the Pirate's Den. Now there's a bit of confusion surrounding the Pirate's Den The building Jimmy Walker purchased is the address 12 Gay Street. However, there's also an article that states the Pirate's Den was at 8 Christopher Street, which is right around the corner from 12 Gay Street. Normally, I wouldn't bring this up, but because there are more articles stating that 12 Gay Street is the correct location, I'm going to go with that building as the correct building that housed the pirate's den however there is this one article that claims it's at eight christopher and that article has a lot more details about the pirate's den and i don't really buy that there were two places literally steps away from each other at the exact same time and were called the exact same thing i don't believe it like 
it's all happening at one time. Like, I don't think they're two establishments. I just think there might be a mix-up in addresses. Like, Pieces Bar, which is there currently, is at 8 Christopher Street, whereas 12 Gay Street is residential now. I don't know. I don't have the answer. I don't know if there were two pirate stens or if the address is wrong on one of these articles. I'm just going to assume, because there's a lot more articles, that the pirate den was located in the basement of 12 Gay Street, Greenwich Village, Manhattan, New York City. So with that, let's get into the building. Gay Street is a tiny little street that used to be more of an alley for stables back in the day before it was widened and acts as more of a side road these days. 12 Gay Street was built in 1827 and looks like it was meant for, you know, first stables, like horses and buggy type stuff. But then eventually, like a lot of servants and or enslaved people lived off Gay Street. When Jimmy Walker bought it, he opened his speakeasy in the basement, not far from other notorious speakeasies. Some were Julius's, uh, Redhead. Those were probably the closest to the Pirate's Den. And were more for locals, where the Pirate's Den was more for tourists. There was also Chumley's, which was super popular for the authors of the time, I guess. Specifically, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, and Willa Cather. And you can still go to Chumley's today if you want. I guess the back door that once was used to enter the bar is no longer used for guests, but... Hey, go check out a real speakeasy, or at least one that was open during Prohibition. What got me is that during Prohibition, 32,000 speakeasies were opening in New York City, or not opening, or operating in New York City. 32,000 speakeasies were operating in New York City during Prohibition, which is twice as many that existed legally in 1920. So before Prohibition, there were like 15,000 bars that you could attend. But the moment they were like, no more drinking, no more alcohol. 32,000. That's so many. They needed a mayor like Jimmy to say no one's getting arrested for drinking because otherwise half of New York City would be in jail. It's crazy. Crazy. The Pirate's Den was a themed bar, of course, had chains, ship lanterns, servers that wore eye patches, the whole kit and caboodle. But eventually the speakeasy did close. And even though it closed, Jimmy still owned the building. So he moved his, you know, what's the opposite of a boy toy? I don't want to get into that right now. But yes, he moved Betty into the space once the speakeasy was closed. 12 Gay Street also once housed Puppeteer, 
of Howdy Doody, Frank Paris, and novelist Walter Gibson also lived there for some time. But during the Pirate Den days, Jimmy would throw lavish parties. There was obviously drinking, obviously dancing. I'm sure drugs were passed around, possibly people hooking up. You never know at places like that. But the best part is that it's the 20s. So flapper dresses, feathers, gloves, pearls, fur. Men wearing bow ties, flat caps, and double-breasted suits. I love a double-breasted suit. I don't have one yet, but I love a double-breasted suit. And I love 20s fashion in general, 1920s fashion. Yeah, I can't say 20s now. We're in we're in the decade of the 20s. If I say the 20s, people could be thinking young kids could be thinking what is our fashion today? I don't even know. That's a whole other can of worms. 1920s fashion, that's what I like. I was in a show called Diamond Little and the Pansy Club and I got to wear a silver flapper dress. It was beautiful. And the whole vibe was just amazing. I love that show. Nah, I would never want to live in that time period and put my gay ass in danger. No, thank you. But how fun it would be to wear all that and I don't know. It'd be fun. I also just love... the culture back then. Not all of it, obviously. I don't want homophobia, but the parties, the drinking, the, I don't know, speakeasies are kind of fun, the secrecy of it all. But anyway, today, if you're in the house, people still hear the clicking of heels on the basement floor, and you all know how much I love the sound of clicking heels. Power, dominance, I love heels. And there have been reports of seeing ghostly women in 20s attire with feathered headbands. There's also an apparition of a man in a black suit with tails. The sounds of moving objects are common, and so are the echoing of steps climbing the stairs. Frank Paris, that puppeteer, And his family had a dog that would viciously bark at dark corners of the house. But after their pet died, they would feel their dog, their ghost dog, brush against their legs. Frank Paris himself would smell things around the house, even though those scents could not be found. Like specific moments, he would recall smelling violets, even though no one had violets in the house. He also had smelled like onions being fried, which is very specific. The paranormal was so frequent that the Paris family had six different mediums visit their home at 12 Gay Street, one of them coming all the way from Australia in the mid-1900s. One medium sensed a man who claimed to her that he had been interrogated and tortured to death at the speakeasy. 
She couldn't get any more details out of the spirit, so no one knows who he was, who killed him. And it honestly could have been a myriad of people because, you know, so many powerful people in New York City visited the Pirate's Den. So it could have been anyone over anything, like money, love, power. You never know. A woman named Alice Hall was sitting in the house facing the front door when she saw a man in evening clothes, a top hat, and a cape. And a week later, Frank saw the exact same man wandering through his house. Now this man with the tails, top hat, and cape is thought to be Jimmy Walker because he loved to dress because he loved to dress very nicely and some would say flamboyantly at the time. People in the house have also heard pounding in the living room as if someone was trying to hang a painting or picture on the wall. Most of the mediums that stopped by claimed that the place was haunted by three people, a man, a woman, and a child. Frank had only ever seen the man, and he described him as misty, but that his eyes sparkled bright. That's terrifying. It's like when you're in the woods camping and all you see are like two eyes staring at you through the dark from the bush, from the brush. No, thank you. A misty man with bright eyes. And then he, he like vanishes within seconds. No, no. You know what? No, no, thank you. Even the friends and family who would visit the house would hear pounding from upstairs. And they would ask, they'd be like, uh, where's that coming from? Is somebody up there? Somebody live up there? And Frank would always be like, no, no one lives there. I don't know what that is. Every time I go check, it's empty. So I don't know. Even neighbors would see the man with the top hat and evening clothes and cape wandering the sidewalk outside the house. People would see shadows moving up and down the stairs frequently. And a different medium said she heard a woman arguing with a man named Ming. So yeah, that is 12 Gay Street, Greenwich Village, Manhattan, New York City. It's one of the most haunted places in New York City. And, you know, if you have a chance to sublet it from whomever owns the building, please let me know. But until then... Make sure you check out the socials for photos, upcoming news, and guest info. Subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And send me your paranormal experiences to Haunted Hometowns Podcast at gmail.com. Could be anything from a tree whispering in your ear telling you everything you want to hear to the full moon turning you into a skeleton because you just wanted a nickel from a treasure chest. Let me know. 
And thank you all so, so much for joining me here on this little podcast. I truly appreciate it. And I will see you all back here in a week because everyone loves a ghost story. The music is by Tyre. Follow him on Instagram at Queer Popstar. The artwork is by Pepe Munoz. Follow him on Instagram at Pepe Munoz. P.E.P.E.Munoz. M-U-N-O-Z. Also go listen to Tyre's music, T-H-A-I-R, on any streaming platform. I got my information from Wikipedia, Sister Kate Dance Company, Smithsonian Magazine, New York Ghosts, Intelligencer, City Beautiful Blog, and Avenue Magazine.